Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we have a conversation with one of the leading underground music figures of the last 40 years, Yoko Ono. Plus, Prince has a new album out. A lot of people are angry at him. We'll dig into the sounds. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time to welcome our newest affiliate, EXT, in the Albany, Schenectady, Troy area in upstate New York. I want an ocean and some sunscreen lotion. Take me to the beach with a thousand pretty girls in reach. I want to be a lifeguard. Help, 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 help. I want to guard your life. I want to be a lifeguard. 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 Hardly any clothes. Lifeguard. Sand between my toes. Lifeguard. White stuff on my nose. Greg, that is a great tune that I remember from when I was a teenager. Uh, was red hot in all of New York, uh, up and down the East Coast. Blotto was a band from Albany, New York. Contemporaries of the B-52s, you know. It had that exuberant New York sound. I Want to Be Lifeguard was played all the time, all summer, <laughs> on all the cool New York, like, new wave-leaning stations. And it was one of the first songs played on MTV. I think it's a good way to welcome Albany to our listening uh, family. Absolutely. As a former upstate New Yorker myself, welcome EXT in Albany, New York. And time now for some music news. That, of course, is Back in Black from ACDC, a song that never gets old, an album that apparently never gets old. 26 years after it was released last year, it was one of the biggest selling albums of the year. ACDC's Back in Black selling 440,000 copies last year. Wow. The reason we bring that up, Nielsen SoundScan out with some new numbers indicating the strength of so-called catalog records in the entire scheme of record sales in America. 40% of sales in America of physical CDs are of so-called back catalog items like ACDC's Back in Black. So think about it, Jim. Back in Black outsells these hyped albums by uh, bands like the Arctic Monkeys, Franz Ferdinand, the Flaming Lips, Kalise. All of those artists would have killed to have had a year like ACDC had 
last a year. Quarter century with a quarter after, century yeah. after releasing the record originally. Some interesting numbers. Metallica's Metallica album, the, the Black Album from 1990, sold 275,000 copies last year, still selling. Wow, that's when Metallica was still Metallica. Absolutely. Bon Jovi's Greatest Hits, still selling over 300,000 copies now, last year. see, that's year. inexplicable to me. <laughs> I don't know why anybody buys Bon Jovi records. But they're still in the top ten with that crappy new country album, too. And Appetite for Destruction, uh, the Guns N' Roses record from 1987, still selling 113,000 copies last year. Of course, there's, uh, there's uh, anomalies like the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. People seem to love this group. Uh, its Christmas album continues to sell over 280,000 copies last year. Uh, but there is some good news here. Uh, Asia, from 1982, only 5,000 copies sold. <laughs> Actually, bad news for Despite Asia. The, but they had that big 40-year-old virgin soundtrack reassessment, the apparently, Asia reassessment. Apparently not impressing a number of people hmm. because their their sales seem to have tanked. Whitney Houston's uh, 85 debut record only sold 7,000 last year. Oh, that's good uh, Mariah Carey's self-titled debut album, one of the biggest-selling albums of all time, only 5,000 last year. So it's interesting to see how fickle the pop market is. We see these hard rock acts like ACDC, Metallica, uh, Guns N' Roses still selling records that were released two decades ago, while bands like Asia, Whitney Houston, uh, Mariah Carey falling on hard times in the back catalog category. Interesting stuff, Greg. I think there's a sociological study to be done here about you know what audiences buy back catalog records and why certain back catalogs live on and others don't. Rites of passage, Jim. That's what I say. You know, everybody had their heavy metal phase. Every boy in America had a heavy metal phase. They may have outgrown it, but I think at a certain point, somebody heard ACDC and they say, well, you know, I want that album on CD. Yeah, but they should go buy the new Mastodon. <laughs> yeah, they should, but they don't. Speaking of Mastodon, Greg, that is a band that played at the third annual Pitchfork Music Festival in Union Park here in Chicago last weekend. We're going to talk about it because it's become a national story. I really think that the three days of music that the Pitchfork webzine gave its imprimatur to and some Chicago local promoters uh, made happen is really a model of how a great urban underground music festival should be run. Our colleague John Perellas in the New York Times took a, a little shot at them in the paper. He said, you know, 30-some-odd bands and not one foreign-language-speaking band. Actually, I have a little scoop. They tried hard to get Cafe Tacuba, and mm -hmm. it just didn't work. Right. So they would have had that. So you had cutting-edge hip-hop, cutting-edge industrial electronic music, metal for the first time. Yeah. Mastodon, as good as metal gets in 2007, was on mm -hmm. that stage. You had a legend of rock for more than half a century, Yoko Ono. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk a lot about that. And then you had this English festival, All Tomorrow's Parties, which is based in London and has done events around the country. Uh, they're still coming up uh, a few this year in September. Uh, boy, is that interesting. They do mm -hmm. this uh, Don't Look Back concept, which is really a misnomer because it involves a band looking back into its back catalog and playing in order, in its entirety, one of their classic albums. Mud Honey is going to do Super Fuzz Big Muff, mm -hmm. plus the original singles in L.A. in a couple months. Here in Chicago, we got Genius, or GZA, of Wu-Tang Clan doing Liquid Swords. We got Slint doing Spiderland, and we got Sonic Youth doing Daydream Nation. Uh, here it Teenage Ryan. 
Sonicute's going to do it at a few of the other events around the country, too. What a tremendous weekend. $50 for three full days of music and some of the most challenging and rewarding experiences coming up from the underground. I think uh, if they have any problems at this Pitchfork Festival, it's only that they've become too big. (laughs) You know, anything that they put on the smaller stage is exploding into national prominence months before the festival even happens. And so, you know, it's become this self-fulfilling prophecy. The thing sells out instantly and people have all these expectations. If it's got Pitchfork's blessing, it's become a phenomenon. Yeah, they've outgrown themselves, Jim. I don't think even the promoters or the e-zine editors realized how big they've gotten. They, They got people from five continents. They got people from all 50 states. 250 journalists. This is a worldwide event. I also would argue that this is the only truly newsmaking festival of the entire summer calendar. You've got Coachella, you've got Bonnaroo, you've got Lollapalooza, all with bigger budgets, all with bigger quote-unquote names. But the one festival people are talking about in terms of newsworthiness is Pitchfork. Yoko Ono, one of the only performances she gave has given in, in Chicago in, in a decade plus. I mean, it's an event when you get Yoko Ono to play. Sure. It's an event when you get Sonic Youth to do one of its great albums front to back on your stage, not to mention Jizza and Slint doing two of their masterworks uh, live on stage. So there was a news element to this. In addition, we're talking about bands that are going to be headliners on Stages like Lollapalooza and Bonnaroo in future years. We Lala, saw Lala them Palooza, Lollapalooza this year has no fewer than seven acts mm-hmm. that were on Pitchfork's bills in the last two years. You look at a band like Battles mm-hmm. that played on that stage, everybody walked away from that set going, wow. You know, a year from now, this band's going to be playing some bigger stages. There's no doubt about it. Jim, the thing I find interesting about this phenomenon is Pitchfork has made clear, you know, one of our producers, Jason Saldana, mentioned they are the Rolling Stone of this generation. What Rolling Stone was to that baby boomer generation in the late 60s, this has become uh, the Rolling Stone of this easy. No, I love I love Jason dearly, but his sense of history is slightly off. What they are is the Cream magazine of of this generation. You know, Cream was not a magazine that ever sold in Rolling Stone yeah. numbers. Rolling Stone would reach two million people. Cream magazine out of Detroit reached two hundred fifty thousand. Well, but the people who read Cream were people like Patty Smith and John Lydon, who well, became true. Johnny Rotten, and and David Thomas, who became Pierre Rubu. So it's meant for a very curious and smart music lover. It's not a mass popular thing. Well, but I think. Rolling Stone did have a period there for two or three years where it truly did represent the counterculture. And I'm talking about a very narrow band, but I think from about 67 through 69, Rolling Stone really did speak for the underground in the same way that Pitchfork does now. Oh, even then, I would say Crawdaddy was a better magazine. Well, but we will we could argue, with that. We could argue about that. Yeah. Absolutely. What I'm trying to point out here is I think what's happening with the festival is that you look at those measuring sticks, the traditional measuring sticks of what was important in the industry, like Rolling Stone, like sound scan numbers, record sales, Mm -hmm. like MTV Play, like Radio Airplay. Throw all that out the window. I mean, there are many, many more people that want to see these bands that can be measured by those kind of traditional yard sticks. You look at the success of a group like Girl Talk or Dan Deacon. I mean, Dan Deacon nearly shut down the festival because there were so many people that wanted to see him in that small space. Yeah. Uh, and, and nobody could measure that in terms of, he's not selling millions of records. No. But there are tens of thousands of people that want to see him. And I think that's the issue that uh, Pitchfork is going to have to address next year. They're going to need a bigger event. They're going to need a bigger park. I think one of the highlights, Greg, uh, is going to lead us very nicely into our chat with Yoko Ono. Honest to God, a lot of people walked away (laughs) with their ears being covered Mm -hmm. when Yoko began to perform on 
uh, Saturday night. Yoko's voice is, is an acquired taste. No two ways about it. And she scares people still. This is amazing. I yeah. happen to uh, have been backstage. She was trying to get the members of the hip-hop duo, The Clips, some of the baddest gangster rappers in the business, <laughs> and Mastodon, yeah. right? The heaviest band in heavy metal today, right. to come on and perform this song with her, and they were both too intimidated to do it. Mm-hmm. Imagine these metal dudes and these hip-hoppers being like afraid of this 74-year-old Japanese grandma. Yeah. But they are. There's something cool about that, that this woman is still so frightening and still so cutting edge. The people who stayed were rewarded with this incredible moment where she led this song, which of course is, uh, you know, she's famous for doing with John Lennon, her husband, and uh, it was protesting a different war back then, but she uh, handed out thousands of flashlights, and everybody in the park was flashing the lights in time with this chant, mm-hmm. you know, war is over if you want it. I think it was a really timely moment and a timeless moment at the same time. That is War Is Over, the chant that Yoko Ono closed her set at the Pitchfork Festival with. She's still very much a controversial figure. There's a lot of people who still don't understand her music, and at the same time, she has become this revered figure in, in the underground world. Even though she was married to one of the most famous men, arguably the most famous man in the world at the time, John Lennon, she's still very much a part of the underground, Jim. Absolutely. It was a, it was a treat to have her in the studio the night before Pitchfork began, because I think we took her some places that people have never heard her talk about. I think it's going to be an eye-opening chat. Nobody. We're here with Yoko Ono. Hi, I'm Yoko. <laughs> <laughs> and we should say that the occasion for you visiting this time is that you are headlining one of the biggest mu- music festivals in the United States, the Pitchfork Festival. 48,000 people, you are the headliner. This is an, a celebration of independent and underground music, and uh, it goes without saying that uh, Yoko is a heroine to that generation well, of people. Well, I'm still underground. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, right. <laughs> you absolutely are still underground, and you're yeah, headlining the ultimate underground festival. That's okay. It's a good trick, Yoko, to have been making music and art for 50 years. I don't mean to embarrass you by saying that, and to have never come above ground. <laughs> well, I like that in a way, don't absolutely. you? Yeah, you know, Underground's a, where everything sort of good happens. It's protective, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because you've got two remix records out now. Your music uh, is being remixed by artists like the Flaming Lips, spiritualized a number of dance producers. So you've got sort of a dance-oriented record, kind of more of a, uh, a rock remix record. Basically, they had carte blanche to go through your entire back catalog of music and, and remix yeah. it any way they chose Isn't fit. Isn't that great? Right? Yeah. Well, first of all, in 1966, I believe, that I had this show called the Indica Gallery Show in London. And um, I called all the, well, the pieces, unfinished paintings and sculptures or something like that, objects, I think. And then um, I did this thing called uh, Two Virgins with John, a record, and I called it Unfinished uh, Music Number One. Mm-hmm. And uh, Life of the Lions was Unfinished Music Number Two. And the idea was to give something unfinished so that people can finish it. Complete so, the idea. Yeah, yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. And it stems from that in a way, you know. And I, well, finally... 
people wanting to do it. And in those days when I said, well, this is unfinished music and you want to do something about it, nobody wanted to do anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting because I've read that about you, that you know, that's like 20 years ahead of its time anticipating the, the whole remix culture in a lot of ways. There was no remixes in 1966. Well, that was not 20 years. What is it, 40 yeah. years? 40 years, I <laughs> yeah, was right, saying. Right. But you were 20 years ahead of that curve where, where remixes started to become part of uh-huh, the, yeah, the culture. Yeah. And that could be said about a lot of your music, Yoko, that it was not understood in its time, but now it's clear that a lot of people picked up on your stuff. So does it feel like a vindication to be headlining a festival of this size where you are clearly an influential artist by a lot of these people who are going to be on stage with you, people like Cat Power and Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth, people who have taken your influence? Is it a vindication? Well, vindication is not the word that I think of it. It's just kind of very nice. I think it's fun and uh, it's very sweet and I really feel like I want to enjoy it, yeah. At the time, though, it had to be difficult. I mean, you you came into, I, I think you were one of the first artists to sort of bring avant-garde ideas into rock. I mean, well, Jim let's, and I, let's, let's dig into Jim that, and I, were, not, we're talking about this before. Yeah, yeah I mean, when, when Ornette Coleman calls you yeah. up and says, <laughs> I'd like to play with you, and yeah, when yeah. you're playing with <laughs> John Cage and Lamont Young, yeah. I mean, those are, are legendary names. And <laughs> for, for the many people who sort of viewed you as someone who, who came to music and didn't have any right to, I mean, this was years before you met John, and you were, you were playing with these heavy hitters. That had to be yeah. something. What was it like playing with Coleman? Oh, that was very exciting, actually. But he was very kind and gentle, and, uh, you know, we got along very well, yeah. How did you meet him, though? Did he approach you? Did you seek him out? I mean, I'm no, curious about I how you got together. No, of course I didn't seek him out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the thing is, I was in Paris, and I was doing this little thing in a club. Uh, it's the Yoko Ono, n- night evening of Yoko Ono kind of thing. And somebody said, Onet Coma was here, and, uh, he, you know, after the show, he wants to say hello to you. So I said, okay, why? So he came, and I said hello, and he said, uh, well, I'm, ca- I'm going to uh, London and do a show in Albert Hall, and uh, I wondered if you'd like to join me. And I said, well, if you're going to do my composition, then it's all right. And so he just went like this. <laughs> You know, like, what is this little girl talking? You know, this yeah. a bit like that. But he was very nice. He said, okay, well, we'll do that. Did you know Ornette's music? Or were you familiar with him at all when he approached you? Well, I knew that he was big. Uh, in Paris, he was like the, the sens- sensation, and everybody just wanted to talk to him. It was like there was an atmosphere around him that if he came into a room, there would be like four or five beautiful girls mm-hmm. <laughs> or just trying to get to him you know it was like that man that that does take a certain amount of chutzpah is exactly New York, yeah. the word I'm looking for <laughs> to tell Ornette Coleman well uh, yes but you're gonna have to do it completely on my terms and the guy he agreed and so th- so how did it go Ornette was very nice about it uh, but uh, I think that his musicians I don't think they they liked it first but but Ornette was sort of saying to them now you better do it the way he, she's saying it or whatever. She was very nice about that, yeah. Coming up on Sound Opinions, we continue our discussion with Yoko Ono, and later on, Greg and I will review the new album by Prince. That's in a minute from Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.
Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're going to continue our discussion with legendary underground artist Yoko Ono. We're going to talk about the song Walking on Thin Ice, a song that she recorded with her husband, John Lennon, literally minutes before he was shot dead in the streets. Uh, I also asked Yoko about her avant-garde musical influences on Lennon's music. Uh, There was a side of John's music that, that, that came out when he started collaborating with you. I mean, it must have sounded like just pop music to you, uh, like kind of like what? What do I? How do I belong in this world? With what the Beatles were doing was what I'm saying. Well, you see, but in the avant-garde, when I was in Sarah Lawrence and I was making sort of music, composing music that was like uh, twelve tone or something like that, and it was getting so difficult, I just didn't enjoy it so much, <laughs> you know. And I was thinking, wow. And then when I met John and uh, the, the rest of them and all that and. And what they were doing was, um, well, uh, well, maybe it's not the way to uh, express it, but it's sort of simplistic and but beautiful, you know. Mm. And I really enjoyed that. I thought, wow, this is what you you don't have to do twelve tone. You do this. You great, can have fun, you know? and you can have fun too, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I just got got into it, and I was very very happy about that. It was very. It was a relaxing kind of feeling. It was beautiful. Yeah. I think that's an element that people uh, miss a lot. Now, there's a quote, and it's one of these things. You know, it, it, it could be apocryphal. It's probably so, people have been saying you've said it now for forty years that uh, every artist is a conceptual artist. I am a con artist, <laughs> which is very very funny. If you didn't say it, you should take credit for it anyway. Well, I did say it. <laughs> <laughs> but it shows a sense of humor that I think a lot of times people never got that you you were wickedly well, funny you and know, you wanted to have fun. Yeah, well, you know, I just wanted to say that, but I mean, in those days, I wasn't scared of anything. Now, I can see that it's a very different age and a different world, and you have to be very careful. You don't say things like, I'm a con artist, you know. Mm. In those days, I was just being an artist and said anything I liked, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm interested in what you brought out, though. You know, I mean, that sensibility, bringing it into John's world. It brought out a real beast in him as a guitar player. I mean, what oh, he was getting out of the guitar. Uh, yeah, I mean, oh, it was amazingly, amazing. yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, and he just came out with all the stuff that he had in, inside of him that he was repressing as a pop star or whatever, you know. And uh, that you just know that pop star was like, he didn't fit into it, you know. I mean, he was much larger than that. So, so I think he had fun, too, to sort of release himself that way, you know. Do you, do you hear echoes of what you guys did in Plastic Ono Band when you see something like Sonic Youth perform today? Yeah. Well, they, they, you know, I, I don't want to say that, you know, sort of like anybody, the younger people were influenced by us or anything like that, because that's, that's precisely the kind of thing that, you know, your parents would say, oh, well, you know, we did that or something. You know, I don't want to say that. But I think it's great that, you know, they're, they're sort of, Based on that sort of situation that we created, they went further, I think. So it's sure. Good, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a spirit. It's a sp- yeah. I, I think you gave people the feeling that they could 
do it. And and yeah. certainly a lot of uh, young female artists in particular look up to you as being a trailblazer. It's like, you know, look at the amount of crap that this woman took in her lifetime. It's never going to be that hard for me. I can do it, too. I can play guitar. I can do avant-garde music. I can mix hip-hop records, and I'm a woman, and nothing's going to stop me. My awareness about <clears throat> being a woman was not that way at all. I was just being myself, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, of course I can do it. But the stuff, you know, that the stuff was raining down on you guys for, for what you were trying to do. It was clearly, you know, it sucks to be a pioneer. And, and that song that is the title song of one of the remix records, Yes, I'm a Witch, which I, I guess never got officially released when you no, recorded it, it in the early 70s, released, right? No. Yeah. So l- let's quote the lyrics here. Yes, I'm a witch. I'm a bitch. I don't care what you say. My voice is real. My voice speaks truth. I don't fit in your ways. I'm not going to die for you. You might as well face the truth. I'm going to stick around for quite a while. That's, you know... Up yours, buddy. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You know, you can't, but at the time, it must have, it must have hurt <laughs> well, to have well, all this see, stuff coming is, at you. Well, I don't know. It just seems like it, it was not the right thing to say at the time. It was not politically, you know, wise to say something like that. But because they, they were really upset with me. So I'm saying, okay, you know, yeah, taking on the fight or something. No, I just, you know, the song just came to me, so I just recorded it. And then people around me were sort of, being very sweet about it, sort of saying, don't put this out, don't put this out. You know, If you put this out, you're going to be killed or something. <laughs> so I said, well, they're already upset with me, so, you know, what else can they do, you know? So it didn't go into the record, yeah. But now you felt like this was the time it was okay to well, make no, this a it's, statement. It's, no, it came from the other side. In other words, the, the record company or whatever, those people sort of just came to me and said, uh, what about Yes, I'm a Witch? As a title, I said, oh, mm. great, great. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, Jim was mentioning the humor, which I think is an element of yours. It's always been underrated, and I brought up the Lennon guitar playing, uh, Midsummer New York. Remember that song? The unbelievable Lennon guitar, and you doing Elvis. <laughs> well, <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> I don't know. That night, you know, we finished all the, and it was always like that, you know, sort of, we finished John's track or something, and John... In the middle of the night, he said, okay, one more. Uh, Yoko had something this morning, so let's do that one. I mean, it was like we were always doing it quickly like that. In the morning, in the car, I said, oh, what about this? And I just showed it to him. He said, oh. And I didn't know that he remembered it or not, you know. And in the middle of the night, he remembered it and said, oh, that, that one in the morning, why don't we do that one? So I said, okay. And I did it in two ways, one straight and one Elvis, you know, <laughs> just having fun, you know. Were they cracking up in the studio? No, no, they were very serious, you know, (laughs) very serious about it. And John said, uh, which one is, which one do you think we should take? And one of the musicians said, the straight one. And John said, are you kidding? (laughs) You know, (laughs) this is the one, you know. (laughs) What about a song like Why? 
which of course oh, is, yeah. is probably the most famous track on uh, Plastic Ono Band. It, you are repeating the word why for about five minutes. Yeah. And you were doing a bebop improvised sax solo with this one word. Because, it's not just one word. You know, word. this is the instrument. My, my vocal, you know, is the instrument. That's how I felt, you know. So. Mm-hmm. And I was using it in a way that, uh, yeah, the sax player used it or whatever. Yeah. Sax player used the saxophone, you know. Like a, <laughs> I was having fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Well, well it's, it's amazing because it took a generation of musicians later to sort of pick that up. I mean, when I heard Rock Lobster... You know, by the B-52s, it was like, that's Yoko Ono. You know exactly <laughs> where that came from. It was, it was like, okay. Again, I, I've used the word vindication before, but at that moment, when you started hearing the punk rockers and the new wavers picking up on what you were doing, was that, okay, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm being accepted now. No, I didn't think that. It was funny because John called me and said, Yoko, this is great. I mean, you don't know what's happening or whatever. And he was very excited, you know. And I just felt sorry for him. I thought, my God, you know, he must have been suffering a lot. That He must have been hurt that uh, I was not accepted, you know. Mm-hmm. And he was so overjoyed about it. You're talking about the B-52s? <laughs> yeah, doing yeah, yeah. Lobster? So he I mean, heard I, it? And, yeah. yeah. Well, of course, I was very thankful that they did that, you know. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we're here with Yoko Ono. Yoko, I wanted to—I blew an opportunity. I, I rarely get nervous interviewing anybody, and I tell you, I wasn't nervous interviewing this McCartney guy, right? But you, oh, I was nervous. Oh, yeah. interviewing. It was an honor. <laughs> we were talking about walking on thin ice, and you just kind of said offhanded, "Well, you know." the story about Chicago. And I assumed everybody knew it, so I didn't want to let on that I was stupid, you know. <laughs> and uh, and then I looked in the 25 Beatles books I have, and I looked all over the web. Nobody knew what the connection was. Now, the lyrics of that song, which I think are probably uh, your most poignant, it's just a beautiful, incredible song. I knew a girl who tried to walk across the lake because it was winter when all this was ice. That's a hell of a thing to do, you know. They say the lake is as big as the ocean. I wonder if she knew about it. So That's here we Michigan, are. Lake Michigan. W- which is right outside. Yeah, We're on yeah. Navy Pier. And you know, it was so funny because uh, it's not a particular story. The fact that I was here before mm-hmm. in Chicago, you know, and uh, when we were s- sitting in a hotel, I think it was in the brochure or maybe somebody told, told us, you know, that did you know that because we were looking at this beautiful, beautiful lake, you know, and mm-hmm. wow, you know, it's not an ocean, this is a lake. You know, it, yes, well, this is big as an, an ocean. You yeah. Know? So when that was said, I remembered it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I just put on. Put on. I knew a girl who tried to walk across the lake. Of course it was winter, when all this was ice. That's hell of a thing to do, you know. They say the lake is as big as the ocean. I wonder if she knew about it. 
Well, and it's of course it's such an image, you know, uh, for the fragility of life. This idea of of this massive lake as big as an ocean, but th- this one time in the year you can walk across it, and and we're all walking on thin ice. Of course, an extraordinary story about the night you recorded that song. Yeah, a, a difficult one. Was it very? I does that know, make it hard to it's listen to? Very hard. Uh, even now for me to sing, actually, mm. because when I'm performing it. It's just I don't know how why why I I made a song because it's so spot on about what happened afterwards. It still makes me sad, feel sad, you know. Do, do you sing it live? I usually say no. I don't want to sing that one because you know it just yeah. gets me. But <laughs> that irony of this whole thing is that that's the only song that most people want me to sing. Want to hear, right, right. I know. Well, it's as close as you ever got to a pop song. I know, I know. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And the musicians all say, well, well we better so we better do this one. Oh, all right, you know, it's a bit like that, you know. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it was the last thing you and John did together, right? Yes. And it leads to all sorts of questions about, you know, John was coming back as you were into recording music again. And it leads to all sorts of possibilities about where it would have gone. I guess, I guess what, what, what Yoko fans and John fans want to know is, is there anything else sort of in an archive laying around that you could ever see coming out from that period of time? Or is it, is it just about everything tapped out at this point as far as you can, you can tell? No, I mean, there's some uh, beautiful songs that John wrote, and uh, I, I'm sure that you know about this. And Westwood One, you know, the, the radio show played a few, few of them, you know. Mm-hmm. And so there's something like that, but but it's not it's not fair to the song to just sort of put it out like that, you know. Each song will have some proper way of uh, <clears throat> coming out. I think, uh, for instance, um, uh, "Free as a Bird" and all that, you know. Yeah. You know, it was there, and somehow it was worked out. So like it came out in the best way, I think. You know. So th- that's the way I have to think about each one of them. Mm-hmm. So, so you feel that the the surviving Beatles did a good job with with those tracks that you gave them for that uh, uh, well, anthology also, project? Yeah, but also it had a kind of societal uh, meaning about it too. You know, the fact that they did it, which is very good. It was very good and was a kind of a up feeling for everybody in the world. You know, so mm-hmm. I thought that was good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What elements, Yoko, do you think of? Just as a fan, <laughs> not as someone who loved John. Yeah. Uh, what elements do you think don't get recognized enough of his legacy? I mean, it always drives me crazy as a rock critic that, you know, Tomorrow Never Knows is such an extraordinary piece of music, which I think is still half a century ahead of where pop music is. You know, you never hear that one. You know, you hear Love Love Me Do on the radio. You know, we could hear it in the elevator coming up here to the studio. But boy, there are elements of, of even the Beatles' legacy, never mind what you guys did, where, where it's still people haven't caught up, and you never hear those songs on the radio. It's like he's still underground. Uh, you know, I still think people don't understand what he was doing with Tomorrow Never Knows. I'm the worst. I mean, like the, the, that song, when you really analyze it, you know, it's, uh, the construction, the musical construction is incredible, you know, this yeah, sort of yeah. interesting things he's doing. Um, That's another good one that you, you know, don't hear that often. Good, yeah. Yeah. yeah, And it's a very difficult song to actually try to um, recreate. It's 
very interesting that Sean, when he was about, um, was, it, was he already a teenager? I think he was maybe. But just around the time that he became a teenager, he wanted to do I'm the Wars, mm. cover it. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, well, if you want to do it, do it. Yeah. And he was in the studio like a, a month or something. I don't know what he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, it's a very difficult one, but it's a kind of, kind of uh, a song that probably the more current people like, you know. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I have to ask you, too, about Rising, the album you did in the, in the mid-'90s, which was, you know, you talk about Walking on Thin Ice being an emotionally powerful track for you. I mean, the title song from Rising. I saw you do that in Chicago. Um, oh, you did? Sean was actually the leader of your of your band at that yes, time. Yes, yes. And you came out and did Rising, the title song, which is this epic 14, 15-minute song. I think it was the encore. And uh, Dwayne Dennison and David Yao from the Jesus Lizard came out and accompanied you on this song, <laughs> which was just, <laughs> it was really powerful, really moving stuff. There's no limitation And I, I sense on that record you were connecting part of your past, having grown up in Japan and experienced World War II and Hiroshima and the horror of that, and connecting it to something contemporary. Tell us a little bit more about the inspiration for doing that particular piece of work and the emotion that was so obviously behind all that. Yeah, well, did I do the Japanese one in the middle of it or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, um, that's because that, that Japanese one I did in Japan, and I just wanted to sort of tell them what's going on in the kind of spiritual world, you know. The, the, we are all living in a spiritual world, actually, you know, so but we forget the, about that. The, de the, the dead. Yeah, uh, the from dead. Hiroshima. Yeah, yeah. And, and how we're connected to that. You know, was the Japanese people really sort of really forgotten about the, uh, their roots and uh, how they came about and what happened, uh, you know, in Hiroshima and all that, you know. They just don't want to know about that, you know, mm. this kind of... And so they're weakened by the fact that uh, they, they lost that memory. So mm -hmm. I'm just trying to bring it back, you know, and, and connect it together. You were connecting it to, to what was going on. You were watching friends die of AIDS in yeah, mid-90s yeah. New York. So exactly. it was a very contemporary kind of emotion there, connecting yeah. those dots. Well, that leads, that leads nicely to a question I really wanted to ask you, Yoko, about activism. And, I mean, here we are. America's in the midst of two wars. And uh, there's going to be 17,000 people out there at Pitchfork. There's a lack of connection. You know, I, I keep wanting people to get mad. Why don't all 17,000 of us walk down to City Hall. How Jim, do we... Jim, no, know. no, I, I feel this way, that music has its own power. Mm -hmm. And the fact that instead of uh, going out there and demonstrating, maybe it's more powerful to have this kind of beautiful get-togetherness. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, sort of like uh, bring out the music and spread it out, you know. It'd be great, you know. That is more powerful than us just going to the city hall or something, I think. Well, you know, the baby boom shorthand. I'm Gen X, right? Okay, okay. You know, I was born in 64, the year the Beatles yeah, arrived yeah. in America. I didn't stop the war in Vietnam, but the no. baby boom shorthand holds that, that, that people like you and John, through your actions, and this, this earned you an FBI file. Wait a second. I think that what we did then, the most effective one was the music, Give Peace a Chance. And Imagine, of course, but you know, it's just, mm -hmm. 
give us a chance, really gave that sort of like a implemented people to be able to say something. You know, it was yeah. good. You know. So at the end of the day, the most powerful thing is not the, music, the music. bed-ins and everything else. It was it was the music. Well, bed-in is, bed-in's good, too. That was pretty strong. Yeah, That was a great image, yeah. right? I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. What did you think of Love, the remix I record? I think it's pretty good. I think that... Um, George Martin and uh, his son, Jaws Martin, and they did a very good job. It's another way of exploring what, what can be done. And that's what I like about, you know, the music, that, you know, it's not just a set thing, you know. You have it, but then you see what you can do with it, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's, that's avant-garde, you know. Sure. It's the spirit of avant-garde. And I, you know, we, we have so many sort of heavy prejudices, you know, I have too. And I thought, never, I would never go to Las Vegas, for instance, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And it's I a went scary there. place. Yeah, yeah. And I went there and I realized that it's an incredible city of future. The reason is because they're starting to sort of like, well, first of all, they don't have the old historical prejudice, you know. There's no history there, so that's good. So they're creating history now in a very, very big way, and I think it's a, it's a powerful city, actually. You know, Yoko, I gotta say though, I think there's an element of exploitation to something like that. The Beatles' original music was so great. You know, I want to hear that uh, rather than sort of creating new products to sort of hook in this new. I, I just feel there's sort of an element of exploitation about it, and I just wondered how you felt about constantly creating new stuff to draw in, you know, a new audience to the Beatles, where that original music is really what that legacy is found. But the original music is there, too, you know. Mm -hmm. So you have a choice. You know, you want to go to there, you want to go here. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, you're given a choice. That's what it means. And it's not an exploitation. It's, it's It's a challenge, you know, to try to do something new about it. Mm-hmm. What, what about those original CDs, though? What about the original music? Do you see, now that the two apples have gotten together, have solved all their differences, do you see a point where we're going to see the digital you know, rollout of the, of the Beatles catalog, and will those CDs finally get updated for the first yeah, time course, in 20 years? The thing is that we don't want to do something that is um, you know, tacky, so you know, we have to do it really right, and so... It's taking time, that's all. Well, Yoko, it's been an absolute honor and a privilege to have you on Sound Opinions. Thank you for coming here. We can't tell you how forward we're looking to your show tomorrow night. It's nice talking to you, too. Thank you. Thank you. And for those of you out there who did see Yoko's performance at the Pitchfork Music Festival, you know it was something to see. If you have comments about that or anything on the show, give us a call at 888-859-1800 or send us an email at interact at soundopinions.org. Coming up next on Sound Opinions, Greg and I review the newest album from Prince. That's next on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.
You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That's Prince with his new single, Guitar, from a new album called Planet Earth. By my count, Jim, Prince has released something like 26 studio albums in his career, and he's pushing about 50 in terms of the number of total albums <laughs> he's released in his career it's since the late 70s. hard to keep 70s. track. The guy's never been able to edit himself. And God knows how many songs and little albums have surfaced on his website. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been one of the pioneers in terms of alternative marketing and alternative sales routes for his albums. Uh, his disgust with the record industry long noted. He uh, etched slave on his forehead when yep. he was signed to Warner Brothers Records in the uh, in the early 1990s. Broke away from the major label system, now licensing his albums to major labels on occasion, as he will be doing with Planet Earth. But he didn't do that in England and caused quite a bit of controversy. He gave Planet Earth away to uh, subscribers of the uh, Mail on Sunday, one of the biggest dailies in England. About two million readers got Planet Earth for free. So that begs the question, how good th- can this album be if Prince is giving it away? What a, what a weird way. I mean, you know, such a, a wide swath of the population reads daily newspapers, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, how many 80-year-old grandmothers who had no desire for this thing, you know, are using it now as a, as a coaster for their cup of tea, you well, know? It's, it's controversial, Jim, because as you said, there may be a lot of readers who have no interest in hearing this at all. It's not really his core audience, per se. And it ticked off the retailers, the record store retailers in England. Uh, Paul Quirk, the co-chairman of the Entertainment Retailers Association in the UK said it. It's an insult to all those record stores who have supported Prince throughout his career. We talked about a similar alternative marketing scheme that uh, Billy Corgan launched with the new Smashing Pumpkins album a couple of, couple of weeks ago, where he offered individual titles to some of the bigger stores and excluded some of the indie stores from getting right. these exclusive tracks. And I, I think, you know, you have to put that in perspective. You know, people may be listening to us say that, and they're saying, oh, boo-hoo-hoo, the poor record store people aren't going to make any money. These are people who, because they know that these fan bases are very loyal for a Prince or a Smashing Pumpkins, they go through the trouble of stocking all the newest releases the minute they're out. Often they're paying much more than the big chain retailers are. They're making less money on those records. Right. And they keep all the catalog in print because they know these fans are out there. And so, you know, 50-some-odd Prince records, you know how hard it is to keep copies of all those in your store? <laughs> and then yeah. he rewards you by giving his new album away for free. You don't even get a chance as a retailer to make a buck on the album, you know? Yeah. This is a man who has uh, has done many things very quirkily throughout his career. Not only his music, his lifestyle, but lately the way he's been selling albums. The Musicology record, famously, a few years ago, that big arena tour, he uh, packaged the album with the ticket. So when 1.7 million people walking into his concerts that year got a free copy of the record. Well, not, well, not free, really free. They paid for it. part of the ticket price, right? And he wanted SoundScan to count it, even though it was much hyped as a greatest hits tour. Yeah. You were getting this new record and it was artificially being inflated on the charts. Look, the guy follows his own muse. He always has. And then there's always Prince the businessman and Prince the the character versus Prince the musician. Let's uh, segue into talking about this album, Planet Earth. What do you say? Absolutely. Let's let's play a track from it. One of the better tracks is kind of the, it's Prince in funk mode, uh, a track called Chelsea Rogers from Prince on Sound Opinions. A model, model, model used to be a role model. model. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, uh, I don't know. Come on, Chelsea. Mm-hmm. 
model used to be a role model. I don't know what uh, universe Prince is living in. <laughs> I don't think models have ever been somebody to look up to, but in, in Prince's universe, they are. Chelsea Rogers is a track from planet Earth. One of the better ones, Greg. I think on that disc, he's, he's really kind of channeling the early 80s exuberant pop funk spirit, you know, that kind of raspberry beret kind of catchiness, but, but with a deep funk underpinning. Mm-hmm. It is amusing. If you go to Amazon or any of the fan websites that have multiple reviews of albums, but by fans, people have been saying every new Prince album for the last 15 years is the one we've been waiting for. (laughs) People have been waiting for him to give us something consistent for a very long time, and Prince, unable to focus and or unwilling to listen to anyone in his life anymore to say, you know, Prince you got five really good tracks on here, and the rest of them, I don't know what you're thinking of. He just puts everything out. He floods the market. I think rather than Warner Brothers keeping him down and making him a slave to the industry, he's become his own worst enemy because he doesn't focus anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that song, Chelsea Rogers. That's one of my favorite Prince songs in a long time. I love guitar. I love you, baby, but not like I love my guitar. I mean, that's great. It's really funny. There are a few others on this album, but boy, oh boy, Planet Earth makes his most over-the-top, ridiculous, paisley, purple, patchouli-scented hippie stuff from, you know, circa around the world in a day. That seems like nothing compared to this. The atmosphere is in trouble, and the dolphins are in trouble, and oh boy, Prince is (laughs) crying about him. You know, he's been flirting with this guy. Najee in recent years, mm-hmm. the, the bad New Age horn player, and Prince doing New Age music is just, it breaks my heart. It's bad. It's lousy. It's not good. Well, Prince has been, for a number of years, some of these bigger rec- records, the ones that he uh, seems to uh, want to give a little higher profile to, like the Musicology record a few years ago, and this one, Jim, you can see him sort of hopscotching through all his favorite moves. You've got the epic Purple Rain style anthem with Planet Earth. You've got the jazzy piano ballad with Somewhere Here on Earth. You've got the slow jam, Future Baby Mama. You've yeah. got the funk workout, Chelsea Rogers. You've got the rewrite of You Got the Look, which is the one you want to you want to see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I feel like I've heard every one of these Prince songs already. I mean, he is a brilliant artist. It, you know, we need to say this. The the guy is a genius, but at the same time, I think you're absolutely right. The guy is so prolific that he doesn't know how to edit himself. I would love to see him sit down in the studio for a year, record a hundred songs, and give me give me the twelve best ones. Instead, I just feel like he's just constantly yeah. churning stuff out. He's recycling his best moves. He used to be an innovator. Remember, p- people used to listen to Prince albums and say, "What's the future look like? What's the, what's the future going to sound like?" Now I feel like he's copying himself, and it feels kind of tired. Well, no, it's true. And and plus, you have you know he, he is now uh, newly very religious, has been for some time a Jehovah's Witness. There's a, a moment I think it's in Chelsea Rogers where he's tempted to say hell, and he goes right up to the edge of it. You know, <laughs> H E double toothpicks, right? Yeah. To hear Prince embarrassed to say hell when he used to be, you know, he was he was Public Enemy number one yeah. for for Tipper Gore and the Parents Music Resource Council for controversy and yeah. and, and uh, all those lyrics. It's like, man, it's a little sad. This is a very, very erratic album. I think Future Baby Mama and Mystery Goodnight are terrible, terrible songs. I want the I want the time back that I spent with that music. Mr. Goodnight sounds like when Ronnie Isley tries to do R. <laughs> Kelly and then Prince is trying to do Ronnie Isley trying to do R. Kelly. It's, it's so bad. Hey, baby, sitting all alone in my courtyard looking as if you had every right. All over the world they call me Prince But you can call me Mr. Goodnight So on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, Jim I, I think there's, there's no way you can give it higher than a burn it rating No, absolutely not Burn it or try to find that grandma who's using it as a coaster <laughs> And get her copy from London 
For more album reviews and footnotes from this and other shows, go to soundopinions.org. While you're visiting, take a couple of minutes of your time and fill out a survey. It'll help us out a great deal. Next week, Jim, we've got a great show. A lot of records underneath the radar screen that uh, we feel our listeners need to hear. Buried Treasures makes its return next week on Sound Opinions. That's one of our favorites, Greg. Talking about favorites, our Sound Opinions ace production team is Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with Chuck the Intern, Chuck Lee doing interning duties, and Sarah Toulouse helping us out record uh, Yoko Ono. Thanks to Kip Corey, too, for making that happen. And thanks, uh, Tori Southside Malati, our executive producer, fearless leader, Major Domo, Big Cheese. Did you catch him crowd surfing during Mastodon at Pitchfork? <laughs> it was unbelievable. They nearly kicked him out, and they said, do you know who I am? And they let him stay. I, I want to grow up to be as rock and roll as that guy. <laughs> On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic, so now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, my name's Chris. I'm calling from Gadsden, Alabama. Uh, I've been listening to the podcast for about two months now, and I'm a, I'm a big fan. I don't necessarily always agree with what you guys say, but... Uh, I still enjoy the, enjoy the show. A couple comments I've been wanting to make for a while. One is uh, about a listener comment about a couple weeks ago when someone mentioned Proud Mary and they just credited it to Tina Turner. And I think that's a little bit unfair. You've got to give Ike some credit. I know he's a despicable person, but I think it goes back to that week when you guys were talking about R. Kelly and an artist's life and their work. And I know he treated her pretty awful and did some awful things to her, but at the same time, He's a pretty incredible musician, and if it wasn't for him, I really doubt we'd be talking about Proud Mary by Anna Mae Bullock. Secondly, I wanted to applaud you guys on your recommendation of Mavis Staples' latest record. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you guys. She is just a gem, and she deserves so much more recognition just for the set of pipes that she's got on her. She needs to be mentioned in the same breath as Aretha. Anyway, I just want to say thanks a lot, and um, keep it up. Yes, this is John from St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, I just wanted to comment on the police concert um, that I saw at the Excel Center here. Um, I think you guys were a little too hard on the police, actually. Evidently, you guys went in there with some great expectations, because I went with absolutely none, because all I figured was, here's a band who's been, you know, hasn't been around for 20 years, all they play on their radio is, you know, some crappy pop tunes that I've heard umpteen times, and that's probably all they're going to play in their show. And I went with that and just thought, well, these guys are good musicians, so maybe they'll put together a good show, and Sting is, you know, Sting. And I actually really enjoyed this show. I thought they put on a really good show. Um, the only thing I thought was really pathetic was that his kid opened for him. I thought maybe he should fit in probably at around First Avenue, not opening for the police. I thought they could have done a better job of getting some other 80s has-been band to open for them. But otherwise, I thought it was a great show, considering all that. Ooh, 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 da, 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 da. 
Hello, Greg and James. I am uh, Rani from Algeria, North Africa. I am a fan of your show, which I listen to through a podcast. And I just wanted to comment your last review of um, the last T.I. album, T.I. vs. T.I.P. And I think that giving it um, a trash straight is a little bit of harsh. I mean, since this guy is trying to make an album which would illustrate a conflict which is within himself, he's trying to do his Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing. And instead of doing what everybody else seems to do, which is bragging about his success and has been tremendously successful this last year, he's trying to illustrate a conflict. And I guess that at least it deserves something. You being kinder to him and give it at least a turn, right? Thank you so much and keep on the good work. Goodbye. Hello, my name is Chris Innes, and I'm calling you from Chicago. And uh, I now know why you have, I believe, the only rock and roll talk show in the world. Perhaps you'd be better heard at uh, one in the morning or something when most uh, normal people are asleep. It is a crashing war. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.